0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Carissa Nietzsche. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. A lot has happened since our last episode of Brussels Sprouts, but a critical development in the EU-China relationship has been the negotiation of the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, or CAI. Today, we have the great privilege of sitting down, joining us yet again on Brussels Sprouts, with Noah Barkin to discuss this development and what it means for the bigger picture of transatlantic cooperation to address the China challenge in the next four years. So for those listeners who don't know Noah or don't remember um, when he joined us a few weeks ago, um, Noah Barkin is a senior visiting fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. He is also a managing editor in the China practice at the Rhodium Group and previously served as a European correspondent, editor, and bureau chief for Reuters. Um, I, for one, am super excited. As soon as any big development happens in the EU-China relationship, uh, Noah's Twitter is my first stop. So thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast, Noah.
1: Thanks, Carissa. Thanks for that kind introduction. Looking forward to chatting with you and uh, Jim.
0: All right, so let's jump right in. Um, Noah, could you get us up to speed on what's been happening with the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment? This has been in the negotiation process for quite some time, so if you could give us just a brief history of that process, and then explain what the key aims were in the negotiation for Europe, as well as Beijing's clear goals.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, as you mentioned, these negotiations started seven years ago. Uh, but I would say that there was virtually no real progress until about six months ago when China started meeting some of Europe's demands. but I think you know e- e- even as recently as late November, early December, so only a month ago, few people thought this deal was gonna uh, come together by the uh, the year-end deadline that both sides had sort of set for themselves. Then we had, An intervention from Chinese President Xi Jinping, he called uh, Angela Merkel, uh, the German Chancellor, Emmanuel Macron, the French President, in late November. Uh, And a week or so later, the Chinese side uh, made some additional concessions on market access. Uh, They agreed to some language on forced labor, which the EU uh, has been hailing as a big achievement, even though uh, it doesn't really bind Beijing to to, to much of anything. Uh, we could talk about that later. Uh, and then we saw, you know, over the Christmas uh, sort of New Year's period, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, uh, who was really the driving political force behind this deal, together with the European Commission, uh, convince other member states to sign up to it. Um, and. I mean, it's clear that China moved after seven years because of the geopolitical context, the opportunity to send a message of European Chinese unity at a time when there, uh, you know, is a lot of speculation about a transatlantic front to push back against Beijing. So I think for for the Chinese side, it was really uh, about geopolitics and sending a message to the world that um, that, that Europe and China were acting together, uh, and for the European side, it was really about uh, leveling the playing field, getting better market access for European firms, um, and that that was the main uh, the, the main win for the European side. I mean, there are, we can go into the details of the deal later, uh, but uh, but in a nutshell, that that was it
2: hey Noah, thanks again for joining us. and uh, thanks for 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 bringing us up to speed. I, for me, you know, one of the fascinating bits of this is, of course, the Jake Sullivan uh, tweet or uh, that went out to the um to the Europeans saying, uh, well, let's let's talk about this uh and and uh, going to your point about uh you know what the what the win was for china what the message was for china who the audience was for china and and europe as well by quickly kind of coming coming together on this and signing it i guess there were also messages being sent to the us uh, i would think uh where certainly for china Um, The geopolitical message to the United States was don't think that uh, Europe is in your pocket the way it might have been uh, three years ago. There's a there's a new suitor in town. Uh, And then for for Europe uh, and and for China. okay, I I get that. I get that as the message. All right. But for Europe, um, despite that warning, um, if you want to call it a warning or at least that statement coming out of the uh, transition team, um, they, they went ahead, and I don't know what the backstory is. Were there discussions in Brussels about, oh my goodness, should we, you know, kind of hit a, hit the pause button here, or do we plow forward and say this is what strategic autonomy looks like? Uh, and uh, for Merkel herself and for Germany, you know, they as you were saying, you know, they were taking the lead in this. What does that say the message from Berlin was, and was there a discussion in Berlin? I mean, for me, the geopolitical um signals being sent uh and how they've been received in washington is a huge thing i mean i think as the new administration uh takes to the field certainly uh in dealing with china you know the cai is is part of that but dealing with europe this has certainly added something new to the plate uh and as uh, and it's a bit urgent because until you can sort out the messages and who was sending them and why it's going to be hard for us to deal with Uh, our policy towards Europe until you kind of sort that out. What what would you say about about that ramble that I just put on your plate?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, the Jake Sullivan tweet was interesting. I thought it was, uh, it struck me as very diplomatic, you know, after the last four years. Uh, It wasn't saying don't do this deal uh, and we're going to punish you if you do do it. it." Um, It was saying, you know, we're looking forward to early consultations or something like that. Um, but I think by the time this tweet was sent, you know, it, it was sort of too late. The, the wheels were already turning. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm critical of this deal, um, I guess, for three reasons. One, how it was done uh, behind closed doors over the Christmas period. You know, a lack of transparency on the details. Uh, we still don't have a, a document uh, for public consumption. Um, and no real public defense of the agreement by the political leaders who drove it. So, Angela Merkel uh, and also European Commission President uh, Ursula von der Leyen. Um, And we've seen trade negotiators left to defend the geopolitical rationale of this deal, and I think that's unfair to them. And then I think the second problem that I have was the timing, and you you touched on this, Uh, I think the timing was very unfortunate, not just because uh, it came weeks before Biden uh, enters the White House. And of course, Biden, uh, one of his core foreign policy messages has been, you know, we're going to repair ties with allies and we're going to work with them uh, to develop a common strategy towards China. Um, But this also came after a year of very aggressive behavior from China, not only Uh, the security crackdown in Hong Kong, uh, you know, the repression in Xinjiang, uh, bullying of countries like Australia and India, but also in Europe, you know, threatening uh, of European politicians who visited Taiwan, for example, the whole mass diplomacy and wolf warriors that that we've been talking about for for almost a year now. Um, But I think the biggest problem for me was the signal it sends about Europe's sort of geopolitical thinking. now, uh, the EU does secure benefits for a number of European firms in a in a small number of sectors and a small number of countries, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think in in, in securing advantages for your for your companies, you know, we saw this with the with the Phase One deal uh, about a year ago. Um, but if you see China as a systemic rival, as a major strategic challenge, then I think you need to think. a a bit bigger. You need to give Biden a chance. Uh, And I don't think there's any doubt that this uh, this agreement undermines prospects for transatlantic and multilateral cooperation on China. I don't think it it dooms uh, these prospects for for transatlantic discussion. Uh, I'm sure that discussion is going to take place and hopefully soon. Um, but you know european officials have been saying for years, you know, why won't trump work with us on china and now they you know The president is about to enter the white house who uh who campaigned on uh, uh a, a policy of uh working together with europe on china and so the timing is very unfortunate and I think it sends a A geopolitical uh signal that that's not very very helpful at this moment
2: You know, I I can't help but think that um, uh, either Merkel or the EU officials or German officials must have sent a back channel to Jake and to the uh, transition saying, look, got your tweet. (laughs) But like you said, the wheels are turning. This has got a momentum that we can't turn around uh, or it makes us look bad that this tweet comes out from the United States, from Washington, from the new team. And and we put the we put the brakes on that makes us look bad in the eyes of of uh of Europe of your of voters people thinking who still have Trump on the on the brain and here all of a sudden the EU is bowing to Washington you know like the old days and and particularly after Trump this is going to be terrible the optics so uh, so give us you know give us some room here we're going to have to go forward but but obviously we will consult with you early and often we do want to work with you uh Washington uh in terms of the um of, of dealing with China and COVID and other things too. So don't take this as a signal. It's just um this is this is something that's happened. So so I would think there would have been a back channel. I guess we'll find out so one day, maybe. I don't know, but but certainly because you haven't, I haven't seen a lot of of what we say in the Pentagon is secondary explosions here. In other words, I haven't seen things coming out of the transition saying. Well, you didn't listen to us, or whatever, you know. I just didn't see it. Things kind of calmed down, but but I might have missed something too. But I think at the end of the day, though, um, uh, you know, it this this is um, that that part of that back channel could have also said. Having said all this, America, I uh, just want you to know that the Europe you're going to be dealing with is going to be different after four years of Trump. You're going to need to deal with us as a, as a, as not the junior partner, or you're not going to be able to, uh, you know, mock us or whatever it might be. You're, you're, you're. We're going to have to work together as equal partners here. Um, it's not going to be like it was between 1945 and. Ah, uh, 2017. Uh, this is this is uh, we're in a new world here too, uh, so that could have been a, a, a part of that back channel too, if there was one. But but at a minimum, that's going to be on the minds of the transition. Well, on the presidential team after January 20th, of sitting down and trying to clear the air on this and make sure that um, uh, we know where each other stands, whether it's the European Union, whether it's Germany specifically. Uh, or, or you know, other aspects of that of that uh, transatlantic partnership. That wasn't a question. Yeah. That, that
1: was just. Yeah, yeah. Well, I. That's a lot of food for thought, Jim. And I will, I will try my best to, to sort of pick that apart. Um, I mean, on the back channel, I don't know. I I know that EU officials have said that, um, and and as I think you probably know, the the Biden. Transition team has been sort of holier than now on the issue of contact with foreign governments uh, because you know, I, I, because of I, I, Mike know that, Flynn. I know that personally because they're all coming to me, because <laughs>
2: right. you know, I'm not under any constraints. So I'm I'm dining well these days.
1: Yes. Well, um, I mean, uh, so I I don't know if there were conversations. I think you know Jake Sullivan's tweet certainly uh conveyed uh, a, a fairly clear message please wait for us um and i think you know i mean my impression is from uh the you know what i've heard uh around the biden team is you know that this was this was sort of disheartening but but also uh good in the sense that it it kind of reinforces the message that, you know, the world that they're about to enter is a different world than the one uh, that they were used to, you know, in the, during the Obama years, um, you know, Europe has, has moved on to a certain extent. Um, But, but I think, you know, just a couple of weeks before they they announced that this deal was, was going to happen, you know, the the European commission put out this, uh, this, transatlantic paper uh which talked about a once in a generation opportunity for europe and the u.s to work together and that was a good paper i thought it 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 kind of broke things down areas of cooperation climate technology um uh, a whole a whole list of agenda items and i'm sure that's helpful for the incoming biden team um i i think you know uh, i think both sides will will move beyond this i think there will be a discussion uh they can they can sit down at the table now and they they haven't really been able to do that for the past four years uh i do worry a little bit about um sort of distrust in in washington uh vis-a- the Europe i think there are certainly on the uh on the republican side you know we've seen um a, a lot of criticism of europe trump has framed europe as a freeloader uh in part for reasons that that one might uh, be able to to justify but um but i think there is, i'm i'm a bit concerned uh looking at this from europe that um uh that this will sort of undermine trust in Europe as a, as a sort of reliable partner on on China, and I think that that trust uh, uh, there's a trust problem, of course, on the European side as well because of the Trump years. I think it's going to take a little while to sort of overcome that uh, and and get on the same page. And you know, China is a very complex uh, uh, issue, as you know. Um, it, it, it encompasses everything from trade, technology, human rights, uh, climate. Um, and it's gonna be a very complex discussion uh, when the two sit down and it's gonna take some time. I think, you know, 2021 is, is gonna be, uh, uh, we can't expect a lot besides talk in 2021. Um, uh, you know, I think it's gonna take a while for the Biden team to settle in. The EU will be trying to bed down this deal. Um, You know, we have an election in Germany, Europe's uh, sort of economic and political heavyweight, Um, so Germany is going to be very inward focused uh, this year, Uh, so we may be looking out to 2022 for sort of concrete results out of this discussion, I think.
0: To zoom us a little bit into the weeds, um, one question I have for you. So this is not completely done and dusted yet. Um, It still requires some other approvals, particularly from the European Parliament, um, as well as I believe some European member states. So I'm, I'm curious, how do you think this will be received by those actors? And do you think this is an uphill battle in some ways in some specific member states?
1: well it doesn't look like the uh, deal will have to be approved by national parliaments that would be a really big hurdle if all 27 uh, national parliaments had to approve it uh, the the guidance that we've we've received from uh, dg trade the trade negotiators uh, in the european commission is that uh, this deal will not need to be approved on a on a sort of national basis uh, but I think the big hurdle, as you said, Carissa, is the European Parliament. Uh, and uh, the issue that they have seized upon is the forced labor issue. Uh, China has agreed in this uh, in this deal, uh, based on the language that they've communicated to us, you uh, officials, to pursue, uh, quote, continued uh, and persistent efforts or something like that to, uh, to approve uh, ILO uh, conventions on forced labor, um, but this is just just a promise to to, to pursue this. Uh, and you know, the European Parliament has been quite strong on uh, human rights issues on what's going on in Xinjiang. They passed a resolution shortly before this deal was announced, uh, with 89% of the European Parliament um uh condemning uh forced labor in Xinjiang so that's a big hurdle i think the other hurdles are uh simply china's behavior over the coming year we've seen uh, literally within a week of uh this deal being announced uh uh you know a slew of arrests uh, in hong kong uh of opposition lawmakers um uh I heard that last week China made uh, issued an invitation uh, for a 17 plus one summit. This is the the grouping uh, of central and eastern and southern European states uh, with that that meet with China on an annual basis. This is quite controversial in Europe because it's seen as dividing Europe. Uh, so they issued this invitation within a week of of this deal being con- concluded. The Hong Kong arrests. I mean, this isn't this isn't a great signal. Um, so, if China's behavior continues, I think the opposition could could harden to this deal, and then you know you can expect pressure from the Biden team. Uh, and, uh, and 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 another hurdle I think is uh, you know potentially in Germany. You know, if 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 we have a change of leadership and a and a more hawkish German Chancellor comes in. Uh, you know that could sort of change the dynamics and we have a uh, We have a, a, a vote uh, Pending just in a few days on the 16th of January on a new leader for Merkel's conservative party And and this person is is likely to be the candidate to to lead her party into the German election Which happens in September uh, and there is one one candidate Norbert Röttgen, uh, who is quite hawkish on on China and you know is pushing for uh you know much closer transatlantic cooperation and a much firmer line on China. So um so that that could also uh, the political dynamics within individual member states could also change the uh the mom- momentum behind this deal.
2: You know um your your point about uh opportunities for the buy Bi- for a Biden administration to um you know to to you know, that that in a sense having to go through the uh the parliament uh and, and some other hoops uh before this becomes EU law, if you will. Um this this uh this gives us an ability, although not as good a one as before the fact, but now after the fact, as it's going through this process, I think the administration has the opportunity to work with either Germany or with other EU members behind the scenes to deal with specific provisions that that causes trouble. Uh, in the old days, of course, the when the UK was in the EU, we'd be working with the UK and saying, you know, these are the three things that are going to cause problems for us. You know, uh, could you help us uh, within the within the hallways there, of the EU, to 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 work on these? But of course, the UK is not there, and so who we work with, how well we work with them, and how influential the Biden administration will be in in uh, getting. Uh, some European nations to, to to deal with provisions that are going to cause us problems will be very interesting. And I, I hope what's happening now is both within the transition and at its state, um, that they are kind of going through the CAI and prioritizing those things that are going to cause us problems uh, and, and trying to figure the best way to have influence uh, and maybe change some of this if they can uh, as it goes through uh, these processes. At the end of the day, if we're able to change some language or whatever, uh, of course, the Chinese would have to agree, <coughs> you know, uh, in terms of the EU going back to them and saying, okay, we'll approve this, but we need these changes. And the Chinese could say, sorry, I see the fingerprints of the US all over this. Uh, so we're not going to, you know, so there's a lot of things that can happen between now and champagne popping, uh, corks popping in the future. It'd be interesting to see how the administration is going to navigate that.
1: Yeah, no, there are a lot of hurdles. And I think, you know, it, it's very clear that the Chinese side wanted this done. Um, I think they wanted this done during the German presidency. The two, the two dates that, that I've heard were important for the German side were December 31st, when the German presidency ends, um, you know, and Angela Merkel is suddenly uh, uh, sort of in the middle of an election campaign. She's become a bit of a lame duck, much harder for her to sort of push this through. And then January 20th, when when Biden uh, is inaugurated and, and becomes president. So they wanted to do this deal uh, before uh, before those two dates. And I think the EU side also realized that if it was going to do this deal, uh, it, it better do it before Biden is sitting in the White House. I think it's much more difficult to, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to sort of finalize this deal. Uh, when uh when Joe Biden is sitting there and, and Jake Sullivan could pick up the phone instead of just uh, send it send a tweet um so yes i th- i think uh, there are a lot of hurdles um whether the eu will be um will be open to sort of us feedback on on the contents of the deal i mean we've heard over the last weeks uh repeatedly from eu officials we were not consulted on the phase 1 deal right, right
2: right
1: so, uh there is this you know the scars of the four years of trump uh uh sort of hanging over this hanging over this deal or the clouds um uh and and this buzzword in brussels these days strategic autonomy uh you know is basically saying you know we're we're going to do what we want and we're not always going to listen to what to uh, to what washington uh, uh tells us or or wants us to do
0: Kind of on that note, if you were sitting in the incoming Biden-Harris administration right now, um, what would you recommend? I mean, how does the U.S. reclaim the narrative on this? How do we approach our European allies? Are there specific ways that we can frame this China challenge that might um, be that Europeans might be more receptive to. I mean, how how should we be approaching this and thinking about this especially given the CAI?
1: Well, that's a very good a very good question, uh and I think, you know, the Biden Harris team, they have their their work cut out for them. Um I mean, I think that they should focus on the low-hanging fruit certainly in the early uh in the early months uh um, once they come in. So I think, you know, there will be, hopefully uh, within a few months, they will have agreed some sort of uh, structure for uh, dialogue between Europe and and the U.S. Uh, talks will have taken place. Um, but I, I think, you know, there's some very complex issues around technology and data. Um, I think certainly in the early stages, they need to sort of show some momentum. Uh, and and generate some some trust on both on both sides. So I think uh, you know, looking at um, uh, working together on climate, uh, working together uh, uh, within the WTO to push back against uh, uh, practices uh, Chinese practices that I think both sides uh, see as a as a serious uh, problem. Um, Human rights uh, multilateral organizations, I think they can really, uh, you know, the Trump administration pulled out of the WHO, um, you know, pulled out of the, the Paris Climate Accord, pulled out of the UN Human Rights Council. I think if the Biden teams team comes back into these organizations and sits down with Europe and says, uh, how are we going to work together to pursue our interests in these organizations? Um, that's another area where I think Europe will be really willing to talk um, because I think in Europe there's also a great deal of concern about China's growing influence within these international organizations so I would while I think the discussion needs to start on on all of these issues the full range of issues including some of these more complex technology issues I think the Biden uh, team uh, really needs to focus on sort of Getting some some early wins, uh, which restore trust and 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 give a sense of momentum behind behind the transatlantic relationship again.
0: Um, one follow up question on that: so it seems in Europe, and you've pointed this out um, earlier in the episode, that there is almost a firewall between human rights issues and economics. Is there a way? In particular, to tie those issues together better, that the United States can kind of make a case um, that these two things should be viewed in concert. So, as you know, China continues crackdowns in Hong Kong and Xinjiang, that there should be economic um, not coercion, (laughs) there should be economic. Outcomes tied to that—that that there, those two things, you know, should not be viewed separately, but should be viewed, you know, as there are issues in one bucket. It should affect, you know, economic outcomes for China as well in Europe.
1: Yeah, well, that I think that is one of the big challenges. I think you know we have seen Europe speaking out more uh, on on human rights, uh, issuing uh declarations um you know whether it's hong kong or xinjiang um you know it was really encouraging to see uh the german ambassador to the un christoph Hoisken, who's you know was merkel's uh chief foreign policy advisor for for 12 years in her first three terms um uh on on, on ger- Germany's last day on the on the UN Security Council, he he called out uh, his Chinese and Russian colleagues and and, and talked about uh, Xinjiang and talked about the Canadian uh, hostages that are that are in China. Um, so I think you know. It, it, Germany and, and and Europe is is becoming more outspoken. But the question is, are they going to do more than, than talk? Are they going to do more than convent, send a tweet or issue a, a statement? Um, and you know, in this in the, in this investment deal, um, they have talked about uh, how the deal s- sort of spreads their core values on human rights and on the environment. Um, by talking about forced labor in Xinjiang, um, uh, by, uh, or, or talking about the issue of forced labor and, and ILO conventions. Um, but, you know, the question is, are they willing to, to pay an economic price? I think that's the big issue. Uh, are they willing to pay an economic price for, uh, um, Uh, for human rights. They have introduced a new sort of Magnitsky style sanctions regime. Uh, And I think it's going to be very interesting to see if they actually use that uh, with regard to to China. Um, uh, There haven't been any indications that uh, that they they will. Um, But I I think that's something that the the EU and the US really need to, to work together on and you know, it's about sending messages, uh, uh, common messages, uh, which hasn't really been taking place over the last four years. Um, but it, I think it's also about the U.S. Uh, convincing the Europeans to to go a step further and and set some red lines for China. Um, you know, I think Europe has struggled to do that, uh, set sort of red lines, and and be willing to to show China they're willing to pay an economic cost uh, for these values, issues, human rights. Um, so that's, that, to me, that's a very open question about whether uh, and how effectively the US and EU can work on that.
0: Do you think some wins between the US and Europe in the trade domain might be helpful here? You Nor know, are there ways that the United States can assure Europe that the Trump days are behind us while the United States was willing to call the European Union a foe to engage in trade wars with Europe, that those days are behind us. Europe can count on the United States, and we can move forward and create a bulwark together against China's threats of economic coercion and tariffs.
1: Yes, I do think there are some some quick steps that the Biden team can take. Uh, You know, the Trump administration introduced uh, steel and aluminum tariffs. Um, that is something that uh, that I think uh, the Biden team could address right away. These affect Europe, but also other other allies. Um, there's the Airbus Boeing uh, spat that's been going on forever. Uh, I think it would send a very strong signal if the two sides could uh, could address that. Um, and then you know there's the WTO. Uh, I think in Europe. There's uh, a great deal of angst around how the how the Trump administration has sort of hobbled the WTO. Um, and if, if you talk to European officials, um, trade uh, is, is, is one of the issues where that they single out immediately as an area of cooperation with, uh, with, with the new U.S. administration. And we're not talking about a, a sort of rewarmed TTIP. tip um, I don't think anybody wants to go through that process again, but uh, getting the WTO back up and running, uh, working with uh, Europe and other allies, Japan, for example, uh, to uh, to push back against unfair Chinese trade practices, uh, industrial subsidies, etc. cetera. Um, you know, there has been a trilateral uh, uh, discussion going um taking place between the EU, Japan and the US uh, for a number of years under the Trump administration but this really wasn't uh, going anywhere uh, because you know th- there wasn't this commitment to the WTO from from the Trump administration. So um, that was a very difficult discussion. I think uh, if if the two sides can get on the same page, on the WTO, that will go a long way towards sort of uh repairing ties and uh and sort of giving this transatlantic relationship a bit of momentum uh with regard to China.
2: Well, one last question as we uh as we end the uh this very interesting uh discussion, which I think we could we could spin into infinity in terms of the various issues, but just one last thing the UK. Uh, you know, it's so interesting to me uh, that uh, as we talk about US, Europe, transatlantic, that, um, that the UK just doesn't pop up as much as France and Germany, particularly, do, and uh, the EU, of course. Uh, but now, post Brexit, the UK is still there. Uh, and we still have an important relationship with them, but there's not as much of they're not as much in the um, you know in the discussion as they need to be as they should be, and I and that's understandable. I think everyone's trying to find their feet now post Brexit. But but let me ask you about the U.S. UK trade relationship. When I do talk to the UK, it seems the first thing that comes 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 out, uh, particularly for non UK officials, just the. The, the the person on the street there um, is the is the U.S. UK trade relationship and a trade deal and what that might look like. There's a lot of nervousness about that. Uh, and do you have any thoughts on that part of our relationship with Europe?
1: Well, I'm certainly not a UK uh, expert, uh, but you know, I, I think what's interesting here uh, is that okay, this, the Brexit is is done now. Um, the UK can begin negotiating uh, trade deals with, with other partners. Um, you know, I, I think the US has to be sort of number one on the list. Um, I think you know the there was a lot of question about where uh, you know when Boris Johnson came into power, how uh, the UK was going to position itself, and I think it's been very interesting that, uh, you know, since Brexit, and I don't know if it's necessarily because of Brexit, but the UK has uh, taken a much more hawkish uh, approach to China. Um, And I think they've they've come down very clearly, uh, and, and this was, I think, always to be expected uh, on the side uh, of the U.S. Before Johnson came in, he was talking about, "Oh, we're going to be friends with everyone." You know, I think he even said, "I want to have my cake and eat it too," uh, with regard to. Uh, I think that was uh, with regard to Brexit. But you know, he he, he wanted to. He 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 was saying, making very very um, uh, friend, sending very friendly signals to, towards China as well. But the U.K. has come down very hard. Uh, uh, on um, on the side of the U.S., on issues like 5G, uh, on issues like human rights, Xinjiang, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we need to wait for the dust to settle, Jim, as, as you suggested, on, on Brexit. Uh, I think, you know, I would like to see the UK and the EU start working uh, much more uh, closely together. Now, that might sound a bit ironic uh, right after Brexit, but... Um, I, I think it's really important for the UK and the EU to work together on issues like China, um, and, and to work very closely together uh, with the US going forward. I mean, the the challenges uh, are really enormous economic, you know, economic challenges related to the pandemic, climate, um, and uh, and some of these sort of te- technology. And data issues. So I think it's it's really important for the EU and the UK to work together, and for both of them to 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 start um to start a very uh, comprehensive dialogue with the US as soon as the Biden administration uh, is in place. Thank you very much,
2: Carissa. Over to you.
0: Yes, Noah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an amazing episode, a wonderful lay down of all of the nuts and bolts of the comprehensive agreement on investment, but also a wonderful zoom out into what we might expect as we're reading the tea leaves for the next four years of US and European cooperation to address the China challenge. So thank you so much for joining us today. This was great.
1: Thanks so much, Carissa. Thanks for having me and thanks, Jim. Always a good discussion and I'm always happy to come back.